Welcome to the Modern Law Library. I'm your host, Lee Rawls, and today I'm joined by Jill Wine Banks, author of the book, The Watergate Girl, My Fight for Truth and Justice Against a Criminal President. Jill, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Lee. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. So let's start right off the bat. The Watergate Girl, how did you come to write it? And how did you come to be termed the Watergate Girl? (laughs) Those are two long answer questions, but I'll try to condense it. I came to write it because I had long been pressured by friends to write a book about my experience as the only woman on the Watergate trial team. But I always said I was too busy. And then in 2008, I finally retired. And friends said, you have no more excuse, you have to write it now. And I started it, but then I failed at retirement. And so I didn't really have time to go back to it until 2017. And the things that motivated me then were, I was seeing parallels between the Watergate scandals and what was happening in the Trump administration. And because I also ended up as an MSNBC legal analyst, I really had time to focus on studying that, and it also gave me an audience that might be interested in a book that I would write. And I developed a big Twitter following, and so publishers were interested in publishing the book. And so I sat down and I really wrote it. So that's how it came to be. Going to the girl part, I really was struck by how young you were, but also how young so many other attorneys who were doing this work were. Can you talk a little bit about how you joined the team and what the team was like when it was first assembled under Archibald Cox? Yes. Uh, Let me first address the question of the title. As you may know, book publishers select titles. And when the title, The Watergate Girl, was suggested. I went, no way am I going to have my name on a book that says girl. And I had the most wonderful editor, Paul Golub, at Macmillan Holt. He said, what captures the era better than the name girl? And I was immediately struck by the truth of that because I was called girl. And if you read the book, as you have, I know, I'm sure you've noticed that there were many occasions when I quote someone as saying, you can't do that because you're a girl. And so I felt like that was a very good way to capture that era and to capture one of the themes of the book. One theme is, of course, my insights into the Watergate scandal and the investigation and the trial and a time when democracy worked and justice prevailed. But it also was to capture some of the hurdles I had to overcome, and to show what it was like in an era that was rampant with discrimination, that was still legal, there were no laws against it, gender discrimination, and that's how that came to be. So I was at the Department of Justice as an organized crime prosecutor when Watergate break-in happened, and I did follow it because I was at the department in Washington, so I read the Washington Post every morning, And I immediately saw that this was not a routine break-in, that it was something political. And as it developed, I then got a phone call to come in for an interview for the office. And I went in and basically was asked to start that day. So in May of 73, I was hired, which was less than a year after the break-in, but it was after 
people started to realize that this was much more. By that point, John Dean was starting to cooperate, and it became very apparent that there was White House and Committee to Reelect the President, known as CREEP, but it was the President's Reelection Campaign Committee, were involved. And so that's how I got involved in the case. I had a number of years of trial experience. And as to age, we were known as the Children's March Against the Wicked King. I was barely 30. My closest colleague was Richard Benvenista, who at that time was known as Rick. And he was a year ahead of me in law school. But actually, because of discrimination, he had two years experience in trying cases on me because I didn't get my first trial at the Department of Justice until I realized that the men I started with were trying cases. We all started in appeals, but they had moved on to trials and I was still doing appeals. And relevant to the title, I went to the boss and said, how come? And he said, well, because you're a girl. And in appellate court, you only have to deal with lawyers, but in a trial, you'd be with made members of the mob and you'd be so much more vulnerable than the men. And I simply asked him, what had you failed to notice about me when you hired me as a trial lawyer? I want to try cases. And that's when my mentor, Charles Ruff, uh, who is one of the, was one of the most brilliant lawyers I've ever known, said he had a case coming up and he wanted me to second chair it. So that's how I got my, my first trial, was speaking up for myself. And when I read that anecdote in the book, it was immediately essentially followed by the fact that that boss who was like, what? But there would be mobsters, <laughs> ended up also being involved in the Watergate prosecution. And there was a moment where I think that you guys had just gotten a hold of the tapes for the first time. And he turned to you very seriously and said, now, Jill, there's some rough language on these tapes yes. if you want to leave the room. <laughs> yes. It, 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 you're mixing metaphors, maybe, but his name was Henry Peterson. And he went from being head of the organized crime section to being the chief of the criminal division and getting involved in Watergate that way. But the tapes episode that you're referring to was shortly after I joined the Department of Justice, Title III, which allowed wiretapping and was particularly aimed at helping in organized crime cases. We got one of the very first recordings of a mobster on a Title III legal tape. And it was being played at a meeting for all the lawyers in the organized crime section. And just before he hit the play button, he stopped and looked at me and said, oh, Jill, we'd all be happy if, if, if you felt like you wanted to leave. There's very harsh language on this. <laughs> to which I think I replied, I've heard worse in my sorority house. And I did not leave. So yeah, that was, but he did get involved in Watergate. Unfortunately, he ended up giving information to John Dean that he should never have given. But I think he was politically naive. I don't think he meant ill. He's a very beloved figure at the Depart Department of Justice, or was a very beloved figure. One of the things I most appreciated about reading the book was, I don't know that I'd had a real view into how the sausage was made when it came to, you know, you were dealing with any number of witnesses, some of whom were openly hostile, some of whom you perceived were liars without a conscience. I'm thinking of Magruder there. You, uh, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't describe you as a 
someone with a huge amount of faith in, in Magruder and his moral sense. Um, and then other people who you felt did have a moral sense and moral code, but had made some poor choices and gotten themselves in bad positions. You needed to, as a group, take a look at all of this information that you are collecting and decide how to weight it. And at first, you didn't even know that these tapes existed. So I have to imagine there were a lot of late nights. What was that like as someone who you weren't at the very start of your career, but you were pretty early on? What was that like to be involved in as such a young lawyer? It was an amazing experience. And the people I worked with in that office from Archibald Cox on down and then to Leon Jaworski, but Jim Neal was the senior lawyer on our team for most of the time. He returned to his private practice in Nashville during the tapes hearing. So he was gone for a prolonged period of time, but these were some of the best lawyers I've ever worked with. George Frampton and Jerry Goldman and, and Rick and Jim and it was just an amazing group of people. And of course, you, as you noted, we were working basically 24-7. And with the eyes of the world on us, everything we said or did publicly was reported. And so we had to be very careful in everything that we said or did. And we became a very, very close group. Our only friends were people in that group because we were together all the time. And because we couldn't talk to anyone else about what was going on. We never shared anything with the press. We never shared anything, you know, outside of our, our grand jury available people. It was a wonderful experience. And it, it sometimes was daunting to think about that I was five years out of law school and I was up against the president of the United States, his legal team, which was very experienced, respected lawyers. And yet we somehow did it. It was obviously a life-changing experience. So I'd love to dig more in on how it feels to become the focus of the press. And you had what I think is maybe a unique perspective on this, given that you went to school originally to become a journalist yourself. And in fact, uh, we both have bachelor's degrees in journalism from the University of Illinois Yay, uh, at Urbana-Champaign. <laughs> go Illini. So could you talk a little bit about what initially made you want to go from journalism to the law and then any perspective you feel like you gained from being the focus of journalism attention versus being a reporter or, or you know, TV news commentator? What was that experience like, suddenly being the focus of all this press attention with some pretty wild headlines? Well, so it took me almost 50 years to actually do journalism, which is what I think I'm doing now by both writing the book and by being on MSNBC and writing opinion pieces. I went to law school with one focus, and that was to get a better job in journalism, because I graduated in 1964 from college. And... At that time, I was offered jobs on what was known as the woman's page. I wanted to report on hard news, on law, on foreign policy, on, you know, just even just the criminal cases that might be around. And I had read a book in 
a constitutional law political science class by Anthony Lewis called Gideon's Trumpet, a book that should be in every lawyer's bookshelf. I remembered reading as part of that book on the back cover, his bio included that he had gone to Harvard Law School. And I thought, okay, I can't get a great job reporting right now. Maybe if I went to law school like Anthony Lewis, I'd get a better job. And so that's why I went to law school. I didn't realize, of course, that Anthony Lewis had already won a Pulitzer Prize before he (laughs) went to law school, and he only went for a year on a Nieman Fellowship, a very prestigious award. But it is what got me to law school, and I'm very excited to say that one day after I told that story to a reporter, I got a tap on the shoulder in court the next day, and it was Anthony Lewis. So that was like, (laughs) oh my God, I was almost speechless. I could hardly believe I was talking to Anthony Lewis. So that's why I went to law school. And when I got through the first year, which I hated, and my advice to anyone who's going to law school not to be a lawyer is, even if you're going to be a lawyer, the first year is really tough. But if you don't want to be a lawyer, it's even tougher. So I decided that I would take a leave of absence because I'm one of those people who I can't just quit. If I'm in a movie that I hate, I used to, I've outgrown this finally, but I used to think you had to stay through the whole thing. So I decided I'd take a leave of absence and see if a year in law school was enough to get me a good journalism job. And I did get a very interesting job that I enjoyed, but the part I enjoyed the most about it was not the writing so much as the lobbying that the organization did. And I thought, you know, if I went to law school and finished it, that would help me be a better lobbyist because lobbyists do what lawyers do. is You put facts together in a persuasive way to present your position. And I thought, okay, so I'll do that. And then when I returned to law school, I had won honors in my first year moot court. So I was in the national competition. And then I took trial practice. And I really liked the advocacy in law as much as I did in lobbying. And so I decided that I would actually work as a lawyer at least long enough to pay back student loans. Of course, one thing led to another, and I loved my job at Organized Crime. And then, of course, who wouldn't have loved being in the Watergate where you are, particularly as a journalist. I was having firsthand knowledge that no one else knew. And I loved that part of of the Watergate as much as bringing about a just result. So that's how I decided to stay with law until actually in 1991, I decided to switch to the corporate business side, not as a corporate lawyer, but actually doing business development overseas for Motorola and loving that. And that was partly a result of having been the executive director of the ABA, where I realized I really liked managing people and buying paper cheap and having the right subjects to print on that paper in all the publications that the ABA had then, and that I wanted to do something in that regard. So that's how I got to a second career. And now I'm, of course, into my third career as a journalist. So what of the aspects, get when you talk about media coverage and the sort of sexism that you face, not only internally within teams you were working with, but also the way you were viewed and, you know, the way that you 
were targeted by the media in in many ways as, oh, the mini-skirted lawyer. One thing that I admired, of course, looking at the pictures was, you know, you were a very fashionable and are a very fashionable woman, and you did not let those labels stop you from wearing the kind of clothes you wanted to wear and presenting yourself in the way you wanted to present yourself. But there had to have been pressure when it came to, you know, oh, well, then should I only wear pantsuit? Should I, you know, should I wear a full length nun's habit? What what should I be, <laughs> be doing here? So to- Lee, let me stop you for a second, because it was not permitted to wear pants. I could not wear anything but a skirt in court. My first trial, I think I mentioned, was in Alaska. I had to wear a skirt. The jurors were wearing flannel-lined pants, and I was wearing a skirt because that was the rules back then. It just wasn't possible. And if you bought anything, I bought what was available in stores. I would have had to have custom-made clothes to have had something longer than what I was wearing. And, you know, when they say miniskirt, it's not the same as today's miniskirts. It was only a few inches above my knee. This was not exactly scandalous. And I always wore suits. I mean, I I was very properly dressed. But you're quite right in terms of how discriminatory the press reporting was. No one ever talked about Rick Richard today, Richard wearing a gray, gray flannel suit when he wanted to appear very aggressive and authoritative versus wearing a blue blazer and gray flannel pants when he wanted to appear more vulnerable. Nobody talked about Jim Neal owning three identical brown suits so that the jury wouldn't think he was rich enough to have three different suits, but he couldn't wear the same suit every day. So he bought three identical ones and he would just rotate (laughs) them. Nobody talked about that. And there is a funny story that happened at the ABA when I became the uh, executive director, at, at the time it was called the COO, but the ABA had just moved from its headquarters at the University of Chicago to the current headquarters, actually not to the current headquarters, to the interim headquarters on Lakeshore Drive at Northwestern. And people missed being on one floor and seeing each other all the time. It was now a high rise. And unless you saw someone in the elevator who wasn't on your floor, you didn't see them. And HR suggested that we do a brown bag lunch with a speaker to get people together, at least for that. And so I did a survey of who the office wanted to have as the speaker. And it was Mike Royko, who was a fabulously wonderful, funny, syndicated columnist. And I didn't know him, but I called and he agreed to do this. So I was very excited that I was meeting the expectations that people wanted. And I got enough information to give a very good introduction of him. And I sat down and he starts his remarks by saying, I don't normally give speeches, but I couldn't resist when Jill asked. And the reason is because I think she changed American history. And I'm going to tell you how. And so I'm feeling really good. I mean, I'm brand new at the ABA and I'm thinking this is good. (laughs) And then he holds up a stack of press photos, all of them full length, and says, you know, there was this break-in at the Watergate and nobody paid attention until some photo editor figured out how to get people to pay attention. And it was showing Jill's legs, at (gasps) which point I was crawling under the table. Yes, you can imagine. It was horrible. I was so humiliated. 
But that was something I was kind of used to because that's how it was. And it doesn't mean it doesn't hurt when you're fighting to be accepted as a professional and as an equal. Leon Jaworski used to call me. He would introduce me to people in person. I'd be standing in front of this person and he'd say, she's a lady lawyer. And I would say, Leon, I'm a lawyer. And if you introduce me to people in person, they can see the rest. You don't have to say it. It makes me sound like I'm lesser than other lawyers. But I never got him to drop that description. He seemed hurt that you even asked. He's like, but I'm so proud of you. Yes, it's true. <laughs> it is true. Yes. And, and and I mean, it's he did not disrespect me. One judge in Detroit, when I would go into chambers, he would stand up when I would enter because it was the gentlemanly thing to do back then when, again, I was the only woman in court. They didn't know how to deal with a woman. And nowadays, that would never happen. The judge may be a woman. The other lawyer may be a woman. There's just, you know, it's when I went to law school, only 4% of the entire profession were female. 4%. So that's how it was. My class was 5% female. And now it's 10 times that. So it made a difference in how people perceived a woman in law. And there is another character in this book. I say character, but she was a real woman, Rosemary Woods. And as we're thinking about the generational changes and opportunities that were available for women, she really comes to mind. Could you talk a little bit about who Rosemary Wood is and was on perhaps read a segment of your book in which you talk to her. All right, let me set the background maybe, and then I can read from the book. Rosemary Woods was known as Richard Nixon's loyal secretary, and she had worked for him for many years. She worked for him from the time he was, she met him when he was in Congress, the House of Representatives, and then worked for him from the time he was in the Senate. And what I learned about her in writing this book is that she was not just a secretary. She was an advisor. She was a trusted person that he sought advice from. And I, I know that from listening to tape recordings in the National Archives that were conversations just between the two of them. I know it because she is the one he went to and said, I'm resigning and I can't tell my family. You have to tell Pat and the girls, his wife and daughters. So I know how close they were and how much she really protected him. She was, in a way, a gatekeeper for a long time. She ended up in a fight with the man who became his chief of staff, H.R. Haldeman, who also, of course, went to jail as part of the Watergate case that I was involved in. I really wanted to portray her as the person she was, as opposed to the news-reported cartoon character she became. She became a laughing stock because she took responsibility for erasing a part of one of the tapes we subpoenaed. And frankly, the White House threw her under the bus. They said, oh, there's an 18 and a half minute gap in one of the tapes, and there's no innocent explanation. Only Rosemary Woods can explain it to you. So I had learned my lesson, by the way, about speaking up, and I thought in the first tapes hearing about two other problems in tapes, that Rick was taking too many of the witnesses. And I said, I'm taking the next witness that the White House calls, and then we're sharing equally after that. And the next witness called was Rosemary Woods. 
She was only a chain of custody witness in that first hearing. But because she was my witness in the first hearing, when the White House then said, oh, there's a third tape with a problem and she's the cause, she was my witness. And at that point, she became one of the key witnesses and frankly, a turning point in how the American public perceived Richard Nixon and the Watergate scandal. They finally saw him as a liar and as an obstructor of justice, someone who might have destroyed evidence. So it changed, I think, a lot about the Watergate case. But because my questioning of her ended up in what I would call a Perry Mason moment where, well, I'll read you from the book and then maybe we can talk more about that. And this is from the prologue. Washington, D.C., November 27, 1973. I didn't think I was nervous, but I could barely breathe. President Richard Nixon's secretary, Rosemary Woods, was on the stand in U.S. District Court demonstrating how she accidentally erased 18 and a half minutes from a key White House tape in the Watergate case, wiping out a conversation between the embattled president and one of his top aides just three days after the suspicious break-in at the Democratic National Committee headquarters. The chunky Euro Universal tape recorder and headphones from Rose's White House office sat on the ledge of the witness box. A pedal that let her stop and start the machine with her foot rested on the floor. The bright high-ceiling courtroom, its wood-paneled walls burnished with years of crime and punishment, overflowed with lawyers, journalists, and spectators. From the bench, Judge John J. Sirica regarded me with a knowing expression. I felt he saw right through me, my face flushed, broadcasting my youth and vulnerability. The previous day, Rose had testified that she was in the middle of transcribing the tape from June 20, 1972, when the phone rang at the far end of her desk, and she answered the call while keeping her foot on the pedal. That, she said, must have erased the president's recorded conversation, replacing it with a steady hum. I asked her to demonstrate. She pushed the start button on her machine and placed her sturdy black pump on the pedal. The crowd fell silent as the blank demonstration tape began to whir. What did you do after the phone rang? I asked her, trying to keep my voice level. Rose glared at me. At 55, she was nearly twice my age, petite but fierce, dressed that day in a color-blocked turquoise, chartreuse, and orange sheath topped with a strand of pearls. A gold cross glinted from a ring on her right hand. I had to take those off first, she said in a hostile tone, delicately pointing to the headphones resting on the ledge. With that slight movement of her finger, her foot lifted from the pedal. The tape stopped cold. Even if she'd mistakenly pushed record instead of stop, Releasing the foot pedal when she answered the phone would have halted the tape, and there would be no 18-and-a-half-minute gap. Rose had lied, and I had caught her. So that's why I say that was a Perry Mason moment. When that happened, the tape stopped, and the jury box, which was filled to capacity with reporters, was emptied immediately as they ran from the jury box to a bank of payphones, and for any listeners who are too young to know, in those days there were no cell phones, and in order to call in the story, they had to actually go to a landline phone and put coins in a receiver to make that call. And at that moment, 
I mean, I, I was stunned and I sort of screeched, but your foot came off the pedal and there's no erasure. And she said, well, it's different in my office. I did it there. And somehow I said, well, your honor, maybe we should adjourn to her office and she could show us how she did it there. And her lawyer didn't object. The White House counsel didn't object. The judge didn't object. And so I left from the courtroom to go to the White House adjacent to the Oval Office for the first time in my life. And the pictures taken by the White House photographer at that demonstration in her office clearly proved much more than any words could have that she didn't do it the way she said. The evidence photograph that we used the next day in court also became front page headlines in every newspaper and news magazine and unfortunately led people to think that I was an enemy of Rosemary Woods so that when I was writing the book and trying to portray her as a person that her friends would have known, none of them would talk to me. They all would hang up on me when I would call. And I actually hired a journalist to try to talk to them, thinking that maybe they would talk to a neutral person. But as soon as he revealed that it was for purposes of this book, they would hang up on him. And then I met Bob Woodward and he said, stop calling. You have to knock on the door. It's much harder to slam the door in your face than to hang up on you. So I flew to Washington, knocked on a door and had it slammed in my face. Uh, so I was unsuccessful except in doing deep dives into research that I could do until I told that story on NPR on Fresh Air. And I got a call from her grandnephew who said, I'll be happy to talk to you about a person he calls Uncle Rose. And he told me a very funny story about why he doesn't call her Aunt Rose. It's because he had another Aunt Rose who was his mother's sister. He gave me some very interesting insights to her that someday I might try to write either an addendum to the book or a separate, maybe a, a news article, a magazine article about Rosemary Woods and the insights I got from him about the person she was. Well, I'm excited to hear that there are future writing projects, perhaps, <laughs> uh, in, your, in your mind as you're going through it. But even the Watergate girl, you were writing this as Donald Trump was being investigated by any number of you know states and different bodies. This book came out in hardback February of last year, 2020. And you and I are speaking partially because the paperback comes out very soon and should be available, actually, as our listeners are listening to our conversation. But it has to be challenging, even though certainly you were looking backwards at your own experiences you were writing it in a time where so many people were seeing so many parallels. Could you talk a little bit about that experience and even what the last year since the hardback has come out has, has done to your understanding of what you went through in Watergate and what Donald Trump's administration has done or it should be investigated? As I mentioned, I had a wonderful editor. Paul and I worked to develop what would be included, because by the time I wrote a proposal and got a publisher, I had written way more than 400 pages. And some of that was not in sentences. It was just outline. So if I had filled in the outline, we're talking a six or 800 page book. And the hard part was what goes in and what doesn't. And we agreed 
that the book focus should be from the date I was hired in May of 73 until the jury verdict in January of 75. So that was the main focus. And then as I was, when I actually got to writing, I realized that it had to go on that because it weaves in my personal story, that ending it there would have left me in a personally unhappy place. I was in private practice and in a bad marriage. And so I didn't want people to think that that was the end of my life in this unhappy place. So we continued until 1980 when I remet my high school boyfriend, moved to Chicago, and married him and started a new job and was very happy. So it basically covers only that period. And then there is an epilogue that covers the rest of my life. So we're talking about, you know, a couple of years in the full book and one chapter for 40 years. And it was agreed that because there was no Donald Trump during the period of time of the book, he would not be mentioned in it. However, it seemed to me that a lot of the stories I told in the book about the Watergate investigation and trial made very obvious the parallels to what was going on and that I didn't need to point them out. I do mention Donald Trump and some parallels in the epilogue. And something has happened recently that makes it even more so. And by the way, in writing the epilogue, I wrote it literally as the book was going to press because I wanted it to be as current as it could, given what was happening with the impeachment that was ongoing at that time, the first impeachment. What's now happened is we gave a roadmap, we the Watergate Special Prosecution Team, to the House Judiciary Committee to use as a guide to impeachment. Mitch McConnell just gave a reverse roadmap to prosecutors. He voted to acquit on a very tenuous legal argument that I think has absolutely no basis in law or constitution. But minutes later said he is guilty. He is morally and practically responsible for the destruction at the Capitol. And he hasn't gotten away with it yet. And he stressed the word yet. He said, we have a legal system of criminal prosecution and civil litigation that can hold him accountable. So to me, that was like our roadmap in reverse. He was saying, we're not going to do anything, but the criminal system and the civil system can. So I think there's more to come on the story of what's going to happen with Donald Trump in terms of legal liability, criminal and civil. I have to say, reading the epilogue, like you said, you were trying to condense 40 years <laughs> into just a few pages. And I would be remiss if I didn't talk to you a little bit about where you went after this Watergate experience, because I think it's so interesting to especially our perhaps younger lawyer listeners, the kind of career you had where, you know, you you served in the government, you did private practice, you worked for a corporation, you worked for a nonprofit. It just, it's fascinating to me. But one part I'd love to get is that you were the first female, was it general counsel of the army? Is that correct? That is correct. Yes. Please talk about that. I mean, you also were pretty young when you took that position. Yes. So right after Watergate, I joined Fried Frank, Harris, Shriver, and Campbellman, which had a female partner. So 
that was pretty progressive in 1970s to have a female partner who happened to be Pat Harris, who became the secretary of what was then had a different name, but it was basically health and housing. And I, I can't remember the full title that it had then. And their offices, by the way, were in the Watergate complex. So what could be more ironic than my leaving the Watergate prosecution and going to work for a law firm in the Watergate complex? But I got invited. I had been there a couple of years, I think, when Carter was elected. And during the transition period, I was approached about several jobs in the administration, one of which was in the White House, one was at the Department of Justice, and one was at the Pentagon. And I read the transition materials and thought, well, the job at DOJ would be easy for me. I mean, I know that. I could do that. The White House, I don't know. I had to look at what would I be doing exactly. When I got to my office, what would be my assigned task? And I decided I didn't think that that was something I wanted to do. And the Pentagon, I went, I wouldn't even recognize a general if I tripped on one. How could I possibly go to the Pentagon? But as I read the materials, the assignment was so fascinating and the opportunities to impact were so great. And I'm a person and my advice to everyone is if it sounds interesting and you think you can do it, just do it. And particularly, I will say for women, men who have one out of 10 qualifications for a job think they're qualified. Women who have nine out of 10 think they're not. Get over it. You know, if you think you can do it and you think it's going to be fun and interesting and challenging, do it. And I have to say, part of the reason was that the secretary of the army who interviewed me was very charismatic, Cliff Alexander. I just thought this is going to be really interesting. And it was one of the best jobs I've ever had. And since this is Women's History Month, I'm going to mention some of the issues about women that I was able to address in that role. It was the year that the Service academies, West Point and Annapolis and Colorado Springs were open to women. So I was involved in the integration of women into the service academies, but also into basic training. But more importantly, I was able to help pass a law that abolished the Women's Army Corps, which was an auxiliary service in which women served, as opposed to the regular army. The Women's Army Corps had only two generals. One was the head of the Women's Army Corps. The other was the head of the Nursing Corps. So, for example, a woman could not be the chief judge advocate, the head of the lawyer's division, because that was a general that was assigned to the regular army. And, of course, there's no reason why a woman couldn't be the head of JAG. So we got that passed, and you now have seen many four-star generals more recently in the Obama administration, I served on a committee looking at sexual assault in the military. And one panel came into the room and it was five, one admiral and four generals. The lowest ranking was a one-star general. And he was the only man on that panel. Every woman on that panel outranked him. And now there are a number of four-star generals who are female and that's all because of eliminating the Women's Army Corps. So to me, it's extremely, that was a great job. I, I got to do intelligence work. I got to do all sorts of environmental things uh, because the Corps of Engineers is involved in a lot of environmental projects. And I got to meet wonderful leaders. The, the military leaders were fabulous. And I had grown up in the Vietnam era thinking that military were 
not so admirable. And I, I, I learned a lot in that job. I loved it. It was, it was terrific. Well, if that became perhaps the source for your next book, I think I would pick it up. But okay. in addition to The Watergate Girl, you also have a couple of other projects that my listeners may be interested in. Could you talk a little bit about both your podcasts? Yes. Since we know they're podcast listeners. Yes. And also, I do want to say that I am working on a proposal for a second book, but it's not the army. It's about hashtag Jill's pins because they've become a big, they have their own fan pages. I try to wear a message pin on every show. And by the way, even though you can't see me, I am wearing a lady justice symbol because I thought that was appropriate for the American Bar Association. And for my listeners, I know you can't you can't view this because this is an audio medium, but uh, I'm privileged enough to see the video and it's beautiful. It's a gold pin on a, on a green blouse and it looks wonderful. Thank you. So um, I am working on an outline of explaining the Trump administration through the message pins that I wore during the Trump administration. But I am currently doing two podcasts that are fabulous and very different from each other. One of them is called Hashtag Sisters-in-Law, and it is me with three of my sisters-in-law from MSNBC. And it is Barb McQuaid, Joyce Vance, and Kimberly Atkins. And we all met through our work at MSNBC, and we loved sharing conversations and throwing around ideas and talking about issues of the day. And Politicon wanted to sponsor us to put together this podcast. And fans actually came up with the name Sisters-in-Law. They started dubbing us that. Originally, one of the Sisters-in-Law was Maya Wiley, but she is now running for mayor of New York City and doing very well. So she had to drop out of MSNBC and the podcast. Mimi Roca was another member at one point, but she's now the DA of Westchester County. And so it is the four of us. And every Friday we get together and we spend an hour chatting about at least, we try to do about three issues. And then we have a segment where we answer listeners' questions. And we feel like we're just sort of pull up a chair and have a cup of coffee and or go for a walk and listen to us. And we're really, really enjoying it. And Politicon has done a great job in, you know, doing the technical end of it. The other podcast is called Intergenerational Politics. And it is with a, uh, he's now 18 and a freshman at UCLA, albeit he's doing it from his bedroom in the Chicago area. And we met when he was 17 and the youngest candidate to be a delegate for Biden in the presidential primary season. And I was also running as a Biden delegate. And that's how we met, although it was COVID, so we didn't actually meet. We virtually met. And since then, during the summer, we did actually meet. And in our conversations, we realized we both share basically the same political outlook, but have very different perspectives because he's 18 and I'm 77. And we just thought, well, it might be fun to do this. And we started out, we just invited some of the people. I'm on the board of the Better Government Association. And we wanted to talk about transparency in government and how important that is. And so we had one of the lawyers, outside lawyers for the BGA and the head of the BGA talk to us about that. And now we get requests from unbelievable people to be on our podcast. Our recent guests have included Beto O'Rourke during the Texas crisis, Neil deGrasse Tyson, 
Secretary Albright, who I not only discussed her book on fascism, but her book called Read My Pins, because she is also a person who uses message pins in her diplomacy. John Brennan is a recent guest. I mean, it's we've had just amazing, amazing people. Paul Krugman is going to be a guest. Um, Lawrence O'Donnell was a guest. I mean, I could go on and on, but it's it's to me, it's amazing that I get to have a conversation. And oftentimes we take a different perspective. So for example, we interviewed Mary Trump, but we talked to her only as Donald Trump's niece and as a psychologist, not as a political analyst, but as using her real expertise and understanding because she is trained to understand that and to try to let people get to know her. So it's been, it's just been a lot of fun doing those two things and working on the third book and who knows what else will come. I mean, when you talk about reinventing yourself, maybe I should write a book on reinvention because I did go from being a lawyer to doing business overseas to doing media and writing. And I, I can't, I don't know what else will be next. Um, I think there's plenty for me to do just in those fields right now. Well, I think there are messages there, both for people starting out their career and for those who perhaps are flunking retirement like uh, like you did. Well, I just want to thank you again, Jill, for joining us. Again, our guest was Jill Wine-Banks and the book, which is now in paperback, The Watergate Girl, My Fight for Truth and Justice Against a Criminal President. Thank you so much for joining us for this episode of the Modern Law Library. And if you have another book that you think we should check into, please write us at books at abajournal.com. And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe on your favorite podcast listening service.